Welcome to Hacker Public Radio. Today we're talking about the basics of RF. Hello and welcome to Hacker Public Radio. Today we're going to talk about radio frequencies and radio. How does it work? My call sign's W3RAZ and I'm also known as Gorkon from the Linux Link Tech Show. <coughs> Ken uh, graciously uh, has allowed, well, a lot of us to actually put shows out on the Hacker Public Radio feed and he actually asked the question, uh, if I can cover it, and I want to try and cover this to the best of my abilities, and that is, what is RF exactly? What's radio frequencies? How does it work? And uh, some basics that you may need to understand if you decide to go and take the amateur radio exam. Now, the next show I record, I will detail from the U.S. aspect on what you need to do to get your amateur radio license. So first off, what is radio frequencies, or what is radio? Well, if you see a light bulb near you, or a television, or anything that produces light, you're actually looking at radio. Now, what do I mean by that? Well, um, radio, quite simply, is an electromagnetic transmission that is radiated from an antenna. I'll get to more about some of that as we go further in. So what happens is is radio frequencies radio um, is essentially light. Uh, that's why uh, you know it is also guided by the speed of light. Your uh, transmission is not going to go any faster than C, or the speed of light. Now, I'm getting a little bit deeper into the physics than I wanted to, but basically, that's really what it is. And uh, <clears throat> how they uh, ended up coming up with radio, remember I talked about spark gap transmitters. And basically, all they had to do was turn a sine wave on, and turn a sine wave off. That's really all they did. And Morse code was decided by short sine waves and long sine waves. So it's a combination of those that make up a character. So it's really that simple. Now the way a phone or conventional radio that most people are used to is how it works is you have like a uh, microphone which a microphone is essentially the same thing as a speaker it's definitely not exactly the same but it essentially for all intents and purposes is <clears throat> there's a diaphragm that vibrates as you talk and it moves back and forth as your voice comes out of your mouth and then translates that into an electrical signal. Now, in radio, 
least conventional one methods of radio that we're used to. Most radio is analog. Now there is digital radio, and I'm not going to get too far into that because I really don't have any of those. But it operates on the same principle. How it vibrates its diaphragm is different. So with radio, what happens is that signal that you're getting from the microphone will then do what we call modulate a sine wave. Now, most people have heard of what AM and FM. Those are both forms of modulation. Modulation can occur in pretty much two different modes. First one that was first invented was amplitude. So basically what would happen is the sine wave would be modulated in the amplitude of the signal. By amplitude I mean that louder your voice would be, the bigger the sine wave, the lower your voice would be, the smaller your sine wave. And the sine wave that you're modulating is what's called a carrier. Now, in the bandwidth terms, when you look at an AM signal, it actually is very wide compared to the next one I want to talk about, which is single sideband. So an AM signal is essentially consists of what they call two sidebands. And because radio spectrum is finite, in most, in the basic sense of the term, it's finite. There's only so much radio spectrum that's usable. And uh, I say usable because the spectrum actually is infinite, but you can't use, for worldwide communication, you cannot use a high frequency like a microwave frequency. It's not going to work. And why that is, I'll get to that <coughs> later on in the episode here. But sideband was invented because the AM signals took up so much space. So they basically lopped off a sideband, either the upper or the lower. And then that's how they were able to conserve bandwidth and let more stations use the spectrum that was given. Now, <clears throat> there's a lot of physics involved in the circuitry and the superheterodyne receivers and all that stuff. But I'm not really getting into that. I'm talking very basics. If you want to get deeper into this, you're going to have to go to some of the sites. I want to hopefully have some sites to pop in the show notes. And uh, you can go ahead and check those out. So, now, the next mode is a mode, that, or the next kind of modulation is what most people listen to now if they listen to radio, especially if you're listening to music, and that's frequency modulation. So basically your voice then modulates the frequency of the carrier. <coughs> now, you actually have 
we really I don't really think there is a upper sideband, lower sideband. There probably is. Um but we usually don't worry about that on FM. Because you're usually using a, where I use FM most commonly is on the VHF or very high frequency band that's a two meters in the amateur radio or UHF and that's 70 centimeters so <clears throat> but that's the basics of both amplitude and frequency modulation and a little bit about sideband single sideband so <clears throat> essentially in a voice mode that's your voice is modulating that carrier the carrier is cycling and they actually in the old days of my grandfather they actually used to call that like a, a instead of a kilohertz or a megahertz it's called a kilocycle or a megacycle so um then Heinrich, uh, I think it was Heinrich, anyway, Mr. Hertz then uh, discovered some things, and then they named it after him. That's why it's called Megahertz. Anyway, um, <clears throat> so your carrier is cycling at the rate that you tune your, freak, your transceiver to. For example, if you're uh, talking to a repeater that receives on and I'll get into repeaters in a bit if it receives on 147.24 or 147.24 megahertz that's your carrier now your voice is going to actually go beyond that that's where what they're where the side bands come into play there so <clears throat> I just wanted you to understand that even though you are tuning at 147.24 you're not actually only passing information on that frequency you actually expand past that so that's why uh, single sideband was invented is because like I said it allowed more people to use the given frequencies so now <coughs> One little sidebar here. I'm actually recording this with a handheld recorder as I walk along uh, to the bus stop this morning. And I just wanted to give you a reason why, why I'm doing that. <clears throat> as emergency communications is part of amateur radio, <clears throat> we often have to work in uh, conditions that are not ideal. We often work, you know, on the side of a road or out in the rain, in a camp, whatever, you know. <coughs> Excuse me. Anyway, that's why I decided to record this episode with a handheld mic and why I will record some future episodes. I try not to do too many of them because I know that the noise can be a little distracting. But <coughs> one thing I do want you to know is why emergency communications is at the forefront of having an amateur radio license. And it should be one, not the only reason you get your license. You should have fun doing it too. But it should be a big reason, you know. 
want to have a good way that you, you as a hacker or a geek can serve the community, amateur radio is a perfect hobby to serve the community. A lot of times people won't understand what us hackers work on, but they do understand you being able to hook up a desperate person who's lost their their uh, relatives, say, in Joplin, Missouri, or Tuscaloosa, Alabama. <clears throat> they can, uh, amateur radio operators can hook you up with those and get those important status messages in and out of the area. So, <clears throat> sidebar over. So back to the basics of radio frequency. Um, so, talked a little bit about AM, FM, what an RF signal is. So let's talk about what you need to actually transmit one and detect one. Now, most most people now instead of buying just a receiver or just a transmitter we'll buy a transceiver transceiver does exactly what you would think it's a combination of transmitter and receiver so that's why they call it a transceiver because it can do both now <clears throat> each aspect of a radio is different the receiving aspect is definitely a little bit different than the transmitting aspect but in the basic sense of the term the circuits are actually not all that different <clears throat> um, so for for a receiver you need far less attention to some things that you do a transmitter now a uh, critical piece is the antenna now <clears throat> for a receive antenna you don't really need have an antenna that is tuned to the receiving frequency. It helps, but it's not really needed. You can attach your radio, your receiver, to a piece of metal. And that will act as an antenna and uh, absorb the radio frequency and convert that to audio. And essentially the opposite method of you converting your voice to an RF wave. So, a receiver basically will use that antenna to absorb and pick up the received frequency, produces it audio. It's the very basics. Uh, a very simple receiver is, if you, if you, if you ever... Well, if you're my age, I don't know if they do this anymore, but if you're my age, one of the things you might have done in science class was build, build a crystal radio. And a crystal radio is a very simple receiver. It consists of mainly of three parts. A earphone, a coil, and then, well, actually, four parts. A earphone, a coil a diode, and an antenna. The main circuit in question here is the diode. Well, it's not really a circuit so much as it's a component. But the diode is, is at the very central. A, when you combine it with the coil, which is an, is an inductor, 
special inductor. It has to be, you have to have access to the coils because that's how you're going to tune the radio. Okay? And uh, without those other parts, that diode can't do its job. But you don't even need a battery with a crystal radio because basically what happens is the antenna picks up the RF and then the diode converts that into an electrical signal that then vibrates the earphone. So if, if you want some, like a fun project that you can do, a very simple project that you can do with your kids, uh, look up how to build a crystal radio. Now, I can see if I can put a link in the show notes. <coughs> but, yeah, and the, a crystal radio is a very crude receiver. And it doesn't have the, uh, what they call selectivity of a modern transceiver. Selectivity means you uh, are only concerned with the signal that's modulating around the carrier that you're tuned to. And you want to reject anything else. So the more selective a radio is, the more sensitive it is to picking up weak signals. So, uh, what is needed for a transmitter? Well, basically the reverse of a receiver. You need a microphone, a method to modulate the carrier, and an antenna. And an antenna in a transmitter is far more critical than it is in the in the receiver. The antenna in a transmitter has to be tuned to be able to resonate at the frequencies that you want to resonate at. Now, usually the most basic antennas amateurs start out with is a quarter wave antenna. Now it can be a whip could be a dipole and a dipole what a whip is or a vertical whip or vertical is a uh, essentially it's a wire it's uh, cut to a certain length for example quarter wavelength two meter antenna it's probably going to be around 19 inches long give or take now the further away it is from a a resonant from resonance means you get something what they call a standing wave. A standing wave will actually work to reduce the amount of signal that your antenna is radiating. Now, what we call the standing wave ratio is a ratio that's measured with a special piece of equipment an SRW meter or SWR meter I'm sorry anyway uh, a good standing wave ratio is 2 to 1 okay you put out 1 watt like a good example is you put out 1 it, it's this is greatly simplified but you put out 1 watt for every 2 that you put in perfect as in 100% 100% of that 2 watts would be 1 to 1.
anything higher than a two, you're really starting to lose a lot of your transmission. And uh, therefore, your range. The more power you, that you transmit, the closer you are to that one-to-one -one ratio, the more power you're going to transmit, the further your signal will go. So, in order to have an antenna, you're going to want to look at quarter waves, half waves, and very, very rarely a full wave antenna. Now, a full wave antenna is essentially exactly the <coughs> it's the same, basically, this has the same bandwidth as your the same width as your signal. All right, so. If a if a 144 megahertz antenna is 19 inches at a quarter, imagine how large that the antenna will be at a full wave. That's why you're not using full wave antennas mostly. So, <coughs> and then we actually can get for even further into it. Uh, take a dipole antenna. A dipole is essentially two pieces of wire one going on each side of the feed point and each of those wires well, I'm trying to remember how I'd, it's been a while since I built a dipole but basically your dipole is cut to a certain bandwidth to a certain wave and uh, one antenna that is an improvement upon that dipole design is called the Yaki antenna which was invented by, um, I'm trying to remember, the last name of him was Yagi, and that was a Japanese name, Yagi Uda. Um, and basically two amateurs in Japan. And what they do is they take different lengths of wire, or metal, <coughs> excuse me, and they put one behind the the dipole so for example in a vertically polarized antenna your all of your uh, conductors are going to go up and down in a, in a horizontally polarized they're going to be going they're going to be basically flat against the earth not against the earth you know it'll be up on a pole but <coughs> um, so in a vertically polarized it's perpendicular to the earth that, that might be a little bit easier to understand, I think. But anyway, they put two conductors on either side of that dipole. One conductor is larger than the dipole. The other conductor is smaller than the dipole. And there's a whole lot of math involved with this. Fortunately, a lot of that has been figured out for us by some uh, companies that you know see interest in and uh, money-making opportunities in making these antennas. So you can generally buy one for, oh, I'm trying to think, I probably paid about $40, $50 for my antenna, my Yagi antenna. But what does that do? What do those things do with that antenna? Well, the, the element behind that goes, what I would say behind, the larger element, is what they call the reflector. And the one on the other side of the antenna is called the director. All right? And essentially, the reflector reflects signal in one direction, and the director helps direct that same signal in the direction that basically your antenna is pointing. 
So basically, a Yagi antenna is a way to give your radio signal some direction. And it's basically, after a vertical and a dipole antenna, it's probably the next one that a lot of people look at. Um, they can get far more complicated than that, but they're ba the basics of antenna manufacturing and making your own antenna is very, very very same very much simple I should say <laughs> alright so heard a little bit about AM FM sideband radio frequency what is it how do you receive it how do you transmit it now what do you do with it well you communicate <laughs> um, and there are many modes you know a lot of modes that we already covered talked about there's AM FM sideband um, and those are both all what they call phone modes because you know, I think back in the day they actually used something that looked like a phone oh and one one important thing I forgot is back in the early times of radio um, you didn't buy a transceiver you bought a receiver and you bought a transmitter so you had to buy both so you essentially back then probably had to have two antennas Unfortunately, now with a transceiver, you only have to have one antenna. So that's a good thing. <laughs> but, so, as radios themselves got a little bit more complicated, some of the other things got a little more simple. So, what, like I said, what can we do with this stuff? Well, you can have a conversation with your friend. Um, talk to very many pe people over the years. Uh, 2013 will be my 20th year as an amateur radio operator and um, uh, I've just had a good time just chatting that that's my favorite mode right now and it's what they call an analog mode <coughs> digital voice modes very similar to voice over IP technology like asterisk they exist however the downside to those modes right now is very few there's not really a standard I guess is what I want to say the standards are um, mostly manufacturer driven the, the standards of, of those modes right now for example ICOM which is a Japanese amateur radio company they have something called D-Star and then I'm trying to think if Kenwood has their own standard or, or Kenwood is an actually I want to say I thought Kenwood was an American company but I think they are now Japanese as well most of the companies are Japanese or Ch Chinese companies or out of Taiwan like Yezu I think Yezu is Chinese or Japanese also but hey man um, digital modes for voice they're a little rare. Most voice m communication on the amateur bands are still happening over analog frequencies. TV may have gave it up, but radio has not. They have not given up the uh, the uh, analog stuff. So now the one unique thing with amateur radio is there still are digital modes that are different than phone or voice over you know digital voice modes like D-Stars. <coughs> For example, there are on um, 
the two meter and VHF, UHF frequencies. There's something that called that's called packet radio. Packet radio will take a digital packet and it uses the ones and zeros to modulate that signal in a certain way and then transmits it on the handbands. Then on the receiver side, they pick the same signal up using the same concepts and then it converts it back to the digital bytes so that you can read it on your computer screen. That's greatly simplified. But if you want to look at um, an idea of what packet radio is like, go back to the old days of your modem. Because essentially that's what a terminal node controller is. That's what you use to hook up. That's basically what you hook up to your radio in order to use packet radio. Now the old ones used to use a purely a serial cable because it is a serial mode and new ones um, there are devices that basically let you use your sound card and software as a TNC. Now it's more efficient to use a uh, and, and kind of cool to use a, re a regular terminal node controller because a terminal node controller in many ways is a computer. It usually has a uh, processor on it. It has some memory for storage and uh, basically if you wanted to leave your tr transceiver on all day um, because your the terminal node controller has your call sign plugged into it that makes it legal so you can leave that on all day even though you're you're uh, not necessarily at the control point you're still within the legal bounds as long as you can get to that receiver or that uh, station and turn off that radio you're still in control anyway you can leave that terminal node controller and the radio on all day and people can actually send messages that would arrive on your terminal node controller and there will be a little message like that lights up and you log into a uh, like a like a terminal program you'd hit the serial port and talk to the terminal node controller and then get your packet email and there is even the ability with packet radio to send an email to somebody all the way other on the other side of the United States and I was doing this before the internet really came into play so <clears throat> that's one one way amateur radio continues to just kinda move on and do things and a lot of times it seems a little bit archaic but you gotta remember in some of these cases amateur radio operators themselves invented the mode and came up with it like for example the APRS or at automatic position reporting system which is another use of packet radio that was invented by WA4 APR Bob Bruninga and the original APR's program was written on DOS there is of course Windows APRS programs there's a Linux one called Xaster and then there's also a Mac one called Mac APRS. I think that Mac APRS still exists. And then there's also a Java based APRS program called Java APRS. You can also view APRS maps on the internet.
So, in fact, I've got a uh, program on my phone. Well, I can get a program for my phone called APRS Droid. And basically, I can get my phone out and I can look at the APRS map. I think it will even actually somehow, I don't know exactly how, but digit-peat my position with my cellular. Now, cellular phones, there really is no analogy in amateur radio to cellular phones. There's no cellular phone that I know of that operates on, this, on the amateur radio bands. Now that I mentioned cellular phones, there, one important thing that that you need to remember, and I actually had somebody right after my first show ask about this, but uh, he asked if there was a way that he could receive. Hold on a minute. This is what I call talking about non-ideal situations. Anyway. Um, he asked me if he could uh, actually receive the internet using an amateur radio. Well, technically it's very possible, but because we're limited in bandwidth, right now the maximum packet bandwidth that we can use is 9600. That's slower than your old 14.4 modem. Slower than your 28.8 modem. Alright? So it's not going to be very usable for modern-day internet, not like your phone is. There's also a different aspect to that because there is a there's this thing that we'll get into a little bit when we talk about the licensing called a pecuniary interest. Basically, you cannot make money using. I mean, you can make money selling things for amateur radio, but you cannot make money as a result of your amateur radio license i.e. if you want to transmit a message for somebody to a disaster area you can't take money for it if there's an amateur radio operator that works anywhere in the company there's these things we'll talk a little bit later I might do a, I think I'll probably do a special show on repeaters be a little bit shorter than this one <laughs> but uh there's this thing called an auto patch. Basically, it's a way that you can make a phone call via amateur radio. Now, in a disaster situation, you can call a pizza place and order pizza f for the people at your location, okay? But only in a disaster situation. For example, if I'm on my way home, I whip out my radio to order a pizza because there might be a person that works for Donato's or for whoever I'm ordering pizza from that may have an amateur radio license that would be an illegal transmission same thing goes for the internet you know because there's a chance that somebody who is an amateur radio operator could be making money as a result of your transmission on the internet over amateur radio then you basically cannot do it plus you're also not allowed to use potty mouth on amateur radio bands because kids listen to it. Kids can go. I think the youngest kid I've heard of with an amateur radio license was seven. Okay, uh, the cover today was a lot of uh, technical information. Some of it uh, should be correct. <laughs> a lot of it should be correct. And if I made any mistakes, let me know. Uh, you can email me at gorkin at gmail.com or you can also email me at gorkin at tlts.org. Thank you for listening. I'm actually recording this live at the. Uh, booth, the Linksling Tech Show booth at 
Southeast Linux Fest. Uh, by the time this comes out, you have missed the show. Uh, hopefully, I might. Well, just listen to TLLTS, and uh, we'll definitely have a show or two out uh, that we record down here. So I want to thank you listening to Hacker Public Radio. Got a lot of good comments on the last show. Keep listening to Hacker Public Radio. I'm going to have some more information on amateur radio and uh, Linux and whatever else I decide to record. Thanks for listening. Thank you for listening to Hacker Public Radio. For more information on the show and how to contribute your own shows, visit hackerpublicradio.org.